All right. I am here with uh, Jeremy Lent. Jeremy, it's uh, it's good to be connecting with you again. Uh, the context, a little bit of this conversation, we're kind of coming off from a few weeks ago, a regenerative discussion, a discussion about this regenerative turn, right? And how that kind of connected with integral consciousness and the planetary crisis and how we make this turn. And it was an excellent panel. And I just wanted to have a more in-depth conversation with you. So uh, the other context of this conversation, Jeremy, is the web of meaning has just come out very recently in, in the United States. Uh, so I've got my copy here on, on the Kindle. I've been very right. much just really soaking it up, making all these connections, writing notes. So excited to jump in with you. Welcome to Mutations. Great. I'm so, so glad to be here in conversation with you, Jeremy. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. And uh, so first of all, I, I was trying to think of like a good lead in question here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, maybe it'd be good to just begin talking about the book. Uh, the, the Patterning Instinct was the previous book you had written. And I had right. listened to and read uh, read it as well just a few years ago. And, and mm -hmm. you you basically you showed up on my radar in a very interesting way. Mm -hmm. And I had been making connections already with what you were writing in that book mm -hmm. with Gene Gepser and integral consciousness. So, so long time coming this conversation, uh, but the web of meaning was really kind of developing. I think some of the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the thesis of the patterning instinct. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the new book, uh, kind of what yeah. spurred it on and, and what you're trying <laughs> to do in it. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, and in fact, Really, the two books go together, um, and it's it's kind of accurate in a way to think of the Web of Meaning as a sequel, really, to the Patterning Instinct. And when I actually first did the research for these books, which was <clears throat> we're talking about a big research project, more than ten years of uh, research, thinking through, note taking, etc. Um, I had this idea that the two books would originally be one, but it, it sort of mushroomed so much, it was clear that was not feasible. But the Patterning Instinct, our first book that came out about four years or so ago, <clears throat> um, and well, the, the subtitle explains it. It's like a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning. And it looked at the different ways in which cultures have patterned meaning into the universe, all the way from our hunter-gatherer ancestors, um, through the agrarian um, civilizations to the split between Eastern and Western ways of thinking all the way to the modern times and looking out in the final chapter at trajectories to the future. Um, and the ultimate sort of essence, if you will, of that first book, The Patterning Instinct, was this um, sense that um, culture shapes values and those values shape history. And ultimately, by the same token, the values that we as a civilization really live according to right now um, are going to shape our future. And this new book, The Web of Meaning, sort of takes this notion to the next step, because what it does is it offers a platform, <clears throat> a framework, if you will, for a, 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 a new worldview, essentially, a um, new and ancient worldview, I should say, but a worldview um, that is a significant alternative to the current predominant worldview, which um, really was once we could call a Western worldview, but has become the global dominant worldview, which in my view is driving us to a catastrophe as a global civilization, um, but is also just plain wrong. 
um, I mean, scientifically invalid, and yet people take it for granted. And so a lot of this book, The Web of Meaning, and again, the subtitle gives it away a bit. And the subtitle is Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Um, and really, that's kind of what, what the book does, is it looks at how um, in all of the biggest questions that humans ever ask uh, about life and about the universe, <clears throat> what we think is the scientifically true um, answer, um, most in many cases is this reductionist um, misconception came about from early 17th century European thinkers that we now take for granted. And modern scientific insights lead us to the same underlying deep insights of interconnectedness that a lot of wisdom traditions we're talking about for millennia. And that's kind of the ultimate theme of the book. Yeah. And I think for me that this has really spoken uh, quite profoundly to, to the, you know, I'm, I'm involved in all of these different communities and everyone's talking about the meaning crisis, the meta crisis, the climate crisis, the Anthropocene. And so much of the conversation is about, okay, what do we do to solve it? And, And, maybe in our circles more so than others, but there's still a sort of lack of discussion about, well, what are our underlying cultural assumptions? What are our cultural values? What are the the patterns of thinking and relationship that we have with the world that are enabling things like extractive industrial capitalism to, you know, run completely unchecked? So so how do we get underneath, right? How do we get or right. trace to these these, these roots of, of our civilization. So I really have appreciated you really bringing that forward. And, and part of it is, is interesting too. I mean, for this, for this podcast, I was thinking, well, let's just lean into it. Let's go into some of the really interesting details you're, you're bringing up. But one of the things you're mentioning about in, in the first few chapters about the prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. and you're, you're weaving some interesting things together. So, so there's mm-hmm. some brain science, there's consciousness studies, there's uh, Taoism, right? There's mm-hmm. indigenous traditional wisdom, and they're kind of swirling together in a very coherent way for me. But you were bringing up PFC, prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex, in the right. context of what the Taoists called you, you way, right? Mm-hmm. Which right. is sort of goal oriented thinking, right? And, and how we've been predominantly using that more and more as, a, as the civilization has continued to complexify and, and, and develop as it were. Yes. So, so yeah, maybe we can kind of lean into that a little bit. Like what is you way? Can you unpack that? And, and, and yeah. this sort of integrated theory that you're putting forward in the book about sort of balancing that style of thinking, right. Complementary uh, forms. Yes. Of yeah. I think, I think that is a great, <clears throat> great place to begin because really that is foundational to some of the deepest questions <clears throat> that we have about humanity and our, our, our relation with the rest of non-human nature, which is kind of foundational to everything else that, uh, um, that evolves from that place. And a lot of people, you know, when uh, people often look at what's going on in the world right now, there's often this response <clears throat> to talk about the sort of the tragedy of humanity or whatever, you know, that <clears throat> we have this, uh, way of this like greater power over the rest of the world and this is our tragedy and we look at we're destroying the world and it sort of gets into this um almost like <clears throat> a little bit like of an apolitical uh <clears throat> response to things and it's the human trait and 
the thing is, this is this theme that goes all the way through history. So I felt um, it was worthwhile interweaving, if you will, what cognitive science is showing us right now, along with what, uh, what I view as a very rich uh, thematic coming from ancient Taoism, which when the, when the Taoists looked at humanity, they, they sort of developed their own theory of civilization, if you will. And they, they looked at the way uh, humans have a way of acting, which is different from any other animal. And they looked at all the rest of nature and they saw nature acting in a way that they called Wu Wei, which means basically is translated as effortless action. And effortless action really meant in their view that all these other sentient beings were just in the flow with the Tao. And the Tao is this kind of notion of just the way of nature, um, the flow, the path of how nature takes. So what happened to humans was their question. And they felt that humans developed a form of consciousness that they called Yue or purposive action. And they used to describe it as things like using a pump to um, drive water up a hill or something, or taking a fire to dry up um, a well. And this is going against almost like if you're stroking a cat and you move your hand the other direction, you're going against the flow um, of what nature's doing. And of course, this is what civilization is all about, right? It's like we put up fences, we, we um, cult cultivate fields, we develop cities, um, we do everything against that flow of nature. So in the, the, the Taoists felt that that was you way that, um, they actually said originally humans were just in the same flow as all the rest of nature. But then all these, um, they sort of uh, would say kind of skeptically, um, sardonically, like these wise men came around and developed artifacts and language and all this stuff. And that was the, uh, they even call artisans who crafted sculpture, the crime against Wu Wei, against the sort of natural flow. But what modern cognitive anthropology and cognitive science shows is that they were actually right in that their view of what happened, that basically humans developed a more evolved prefrontal cortex than other mammals. Um, in particular, we have something called the anterior um, part of the prefrontal cortex, which is highly more developed than even other primates, whatever. And that is what mediates our ability to have what I call in my first book, the patterning instinct to pattern meaning into things, which um, leads to language and leads to culture and leads ultimately to civilization. So we might say, well, is this then, is this the human tragedy, if you will, to um, that because we have this conceptual, what I call conceptual consciousness, um, that sort of destroys our ability to uh, get back to Wu Wei. And a lot of Taoist um, practices, in fact, are about, learning how to undo some of those layers of our conceptual consciousness to get back in touch with Wu Wei, with that effortless action. And um, what I suggest is that it doesn't have to be a tragedy, basically, that there's a possibility for us to use the skills that are fairly unique to humans, that conceptual consciousness, to reintegrate with our animate consciousness. If there is a tragedy, uh, that have been unfolding. And I wouldn't call it a tragedy so much, but uh, the thing that's driving us to, in many ways to this the disaster is that in the West, the whole Western identity 
of who I am as a human being got absolutely fixated on just that UA or that conceptual consciousness, that symbolic thinking. And we can sort of trace that back, or we can trace it all the way back to ancient Greece, but more recently to Descartes, when he said, cogito ego sum, I think, therefore, therefore I am. Not like, and that's part of me, but that is who I am. And it's no, no surprise that people like Descartes then got to see the rest of nature as just machines and their bodies as really just a housing for their true identity. And really what Descartes did was take the Christian notion of soul and translate it into modern terminology of mind. But it's the same kind of sense of there's an essence, a human essence, that's that thinking nature that is who we truly are which if you follow the logic of that, that sets us against nature. It says the rest of nature doesn't really have true identity like our human identity. Um, whereas an integrative consciousness recognizes that we are both that conceptual and animate consciousness. And that offers a pathway and a challenge for us, um, not just as individual humans, but for our human species to try to find a path of integration. Yeah, that's, that's a, thank you for laying that out in an excellent way that there's there's two terms that I think uh, listeners might be interested in unpacking a little bit more. You mentioned conceptual consciousness, the kind right. of Descartian articulation, the Cartesian articulation, and then animate consciousness, right, which is this other layer, this older layer, which seems to be at the basis of and, and you bring in Ian McGilchrist as, as one example right. of talking about mm -hmm. the left and the, the right hemispheres. There's other thinkers like Leonard Schlein, who, who has talked a bit about this in, in Schlein's own formatting. Um, and even with my own background in, in, say, like Gene Gepser's work, there's this interesting kind of symmetry that shows up in, the, in these models of consciousness of the unperspectival and then the perspectival being very similar, at least anyway, uh, in my take in, in what you're describing here. So, mm -hmm. so maybe we could, we can unpack that a little bit. And, and I do have some little things to sprinkle in, like um, the, the, the way in which getting fixated, like, like, why did we get stuck, you know, and, and how does this process of, I mean, that's sort of the narrative here, like, why did we get stuck? And how do we get unstuck? Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but this is something like David Graeber and Wayne Grow has have brought up in, in some of their recent writing. Um, uh, Graeber has, uh, passed away, unfortunately, last year, but there's still a book yeah. that's coming up uh, with their research together. And that's one of the questions they ask, why did we get stuck with this one way of organizing society? Um, and then even with like James C. Scott talking about, you know, in, in Against the Grain, which is a book that mm -hmm. uh, had a big impact yeah. on me last year, mm -hmm. which is, okay, well, human beings for thousands of years seem to be able to have multi-subsistence forms of organization without, without the state. And we had little um, agricultural settlements without a state. Mm -hmm. And that existed for 5,000 years. And we did all sorts of things. And if we want, needed to be hunter gatherers, we mm -hmm. could do that. If we needed to grow crops, we could do that. So, and he's asking a very similar question. Why did we get stuck? So I keep hearing yeah. this as a sort of one of these patterns that, that, that comes up. But anyway, coming back to the question, could we unpack a little bit of what animate consciousness is about and then in its relationship to conceptual yeah yeah sure yeah thanks and um and i do love that book by scott against the grain it's it, it really goes deep into this really looking at what that shift from nomadic hunter gatherer to agrarian civilization was all about uh, and comes up with some disturbing uh interpretations which i i, I think are very powerful so um yeah so animate 
consciousness really refers, and I, I often, I will also call it animate intelligence, um, which is relating to animate consciousness. Really, it's like the intelligence that arises out of animate consciousness. And um, it refers to basically what Western uh, thinking and Western and early Western science denied even existed, which is this intrinsic intelligence that all that is shared by all natural um, beings, basically. Um, and even now, if you look at people writing about IQ and um, <clears throat> like theories of intelligence, most of them will talk about this truly unique human intelligence, like general um, IQ, whatever they, and, and, and G factor, they call it whatever, um, which is is like what makes, it's, it's, it's this kind of game people play. It's like, we define something based on human terms. And then because we've defined it based on what is uniquely human, we say, but so then no other creature has it. And well, right, if you define something like that, then you can um, obviously eliminate every other creature from it. But actually what recent studies in ethology and um, cellular biology um, have discovered is that there's this incredible intelligence all the way through nature. And we, it's most obvious in sort of other high functioning mammals. Like we now know that elephants actually communicate with each other, sometimes through over hundreds of miles through infrasound. And we know that they do ceremonies over um, dead, uh, um, uh, other dead elephants in their, um, in their community with uh, for hours, they'll like hold ceremonies. We know the cetaceans, will talk with each other, gossip about other people, other cetaceans who aren't present, and there's all this complexity going on. But even trees or plants, we now know, have incredible deep sentience and intelligence. They have actually um, senses, not just our five senses, but about up to 15 different other senses of ways of relating to the environment. And they use these in intelligent ways and they'll communicate with each other. And, uh, and we now, like there's this biologist, Suzanne Simard, who calls the ways in which trees communicate th through the mycorrhizal fungal network in forests, the wood wide web because they transmit information to each other and they'll even transmit nutrients to each other, like the big mother trees sending nutrients to uh, trees that might need them more at the outskirts of the forest um, through this wood wide web. And then if you go even deeper, like, and it's only in recent times that uh, cellular biology has looked at how tiny little cells of which each of us has 40 trillion in our bodies actually work. And they're incredibly intelligent, basically. They, they'll sense the environment through hundreds of different portals. They'll, the amount of activity going on in one cell is just mind blowing. Um, and they'll, they'll make decisions all the time as to what they're doing. They'll communicate with each other in their community. They'll make decisions as groups. And in fact, the intelligence of a single cell is really still beyond even the greatest AI or artificial intelligence that humans have developed in just one single cell. This is what nature has developed. And this is what we've only begun scientifically to discover, but what indigenous knowledge and the Taoists in that notion of Wu Wei had a deep intuitive understanding of, that there's this incredible deep intelligence all around us. So that's what I call animate consciousness. And it applies to humans too. It's not just that I think, therefore I am, it's actually I feel. Um, and therefore I am too. And in fact, our, we have this deep animate intelligence. And part of what I think is the challenge 
um, for that integrative intelligence is to reconnect with what actually connects us with all of life. And in a way, it's kind of a gateway to recognize our deep interconnectedness with life. Once we realize that as a human mammal, as a human being, uh, like a big chunk of me, the sort of most of me is actually that same deep animate consciousness and intelligence that other uh, that I share with all of life around me, which is this kind of pathway to realizing that actually what we are is part of life in a much bigger way than these separate little uh, sort of human conscious entities. Yes, yes, uh, so well said, and, and that that just gets me so. I mean, this is something that I think has been coming up quite a bit in many different conversations in in the consciousness culture circles. And, uh, you know, we have folks like Tyson Young-Caporta talking right. sand talk, and you, you mentioned Robin Wall uh, Kimmerer in your book. And so there's this interest in reconnecting with this animate consciousness, um, somatic intelligence, as it's called in, in some circles, right. um, animistic um, or, or practices of animism, right? So... So we have this sort of constellation of not just just meaning, but um, as as you talk about, like how how do we how I mean, what does it look like to really integrate? I mean, I, think, I guess that's yeah. the question. That's the kind yes. of like really juicy question that I think so many of us are stumbling over, perhaps appropriately so, because it's a big question and it's difficult yeah. to wrestle with. But also, like. I don't know if you've been hearing some of the meta meta modern discourses, but they talk about oscillation um, mm -hmm. in the context of moving back and forth between met, um, modern and postmodern, or you know, being in between worlds is one of the other kind of mm -hmm. framings. But for me, like what you're talking about and articulating in this book is the real tension of of, of learning to become not just modern or not just yeah. in the conceptual consciousness, and it is a learning process. So so. How do you understand that learning process of yeah, really learning yeah. to integrate them? And in a way, it's both a learning and an unlearning process, and because a lot of it is peeling off what our culture tells us and what has kind of accreted in layers over that that core animate intelligence. Um, and um, but yeah, I I think maybe that one way to begin, and I love that question. Thank you for sort of steering in, into this investigation. I think it's crucial. I agree with you. Um, one way to think about this is to ask what is what is in if I talk about an integrative uh, consciousness, what does integration actually mean? And to me, I actually think Dan Siegel, the um, interpersonal neurobiologist, comes up with what I find the most resonant way of thinking about integration, which is like unity with differentiation. So it's like it's it's not. And everything just being separate, it, but it's not just unifying in that some homogenous way, but actually maintaining the separation with the unity through a sense of overall coherence of something which is which is integrated. And in fact, all of life arises through integration. A single cell, um, all these you have all these incredibly different parts, different proteins, and and different uh, elements doing all these different things, but they're all unified in their overall objective. They all share the same uh, overall goal of what they're trying to do. Just the same with in my body, all those 40 trillion cells share the same DNA. They're all working together, even while they're so different. And we can see that as we expand all the way out to the whole earth system of Gaia or whatever. So if we think about integration in that sense, and we ask this question about what it means 
for us as a for each of us as a human being to integrate? Well, I think the the first um, the first place has to begin is the simple recognition of the validity um, uh, of those two elements of our consciousness, and not in terms of rejecting the conceptual consciousness. And so this is not about saying, oh, we got to get away from rational thinking and just feel and go back into our bodies. Yes, that's a good thing to do, but not rejecting, but actually using the incredible skills that we can celebrate that we have as human beings um, to work to basically use that meta-awareness and recognize it is possible to integrate the two within us. And there's many practices, I think, that offer that capability. And, um, you know, we can explore any or each of them. But to me, some of the key practices would be things like um, 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 serious meditation practice, absolutely crucial in my mind. But meditation alone often maintains some of that duality. And often maintains this sense that I am a mind, uh, and I am a mind being aware. It's called mindfulness, right? I am a mind being aware of my body, and and so there's still this sense that I am observing what these things in my body is around. Which is why one of, to me, one of the most powerful practices are some of the, not surprisingly, traditional Chinese practices, which came out of that kind of Taoist tradition, and um, things like qigong or tai chi. Um, practices where you're actually um, allowing the body to take the lead. And it's really, rather than saying, I am a mind that is embodied, you're actually coming from the place of recognizing that I am a body that also has this consciousness and this other element. So it's coming from the core embodied presence, which I find incredibly powerful myself. And that's a, that leads to a much a greater, deeper level of that integration. And then there's all kinds of different practices like just being in nature, connecting with the rest of animate consciousness in a really deep way, or um, think, think, things like dance, and um, uh, things where we can allow that animate intelligence to really uh, take a lead in what, in where it's taking us, as well as, of course, things like intentional and um, skillful use of like sacred medicines to help to break out of some of those barriers that our culture puts around us. Yeah, yeah, these are excellent practices. And there's so much again, especially right here in this inquiry of, of bringing together these different um, modes of, of participating and being in the world. Um, so, so it, in order to to ask this question or or, or to find uh, a through line here, I have to kind of bring in Gepser a little bit in my own yeah. studies, and and part of this is part of why I wanted to have that chat, this chat with you, um, because you know I, I know folks know Gepser through Ken Wilber's work. Uh, there's different stages of consciousness, but if you look at Gepser's original writing, and he was writing this in the 1940s, he he was he was essentially kind of a, attempting to articulate a, a very similar model in the sense that. He was looking at these earlier structures and basically saying they have their own validity and their own brilliance, their own mastery with the world and their own relationship in time and space, et cetera, and forms of embodiment. And us as moderns in the perspective of our mental world have, have our own sort of center of gravity as well. And, and the key is not to subsume the old into the new, right? Mm -hmm. Or to assimilate or to render the unconscious conscious or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Just shining a light on like, no darkness and 
um, uh, Twilight or the, the hummus, right? The underground has mm. its own reality that um, wakeful directive thinking doesn't just by, by its definition can't even see. So, so there has to be another mode of our own consciousness, which can integrate the whole, right? Or as he right. said, to diaphanously shine through. And I yeah. wanted to share, even though that, you know, this is a, it's a short paragraph, but I wanted to share and read it like a poem, if you will. But mm. I just wanted to kind of get your own, how you're grokking this and, and if there is some kind of mm. resonance here. So Thank that's you. okay. Let yeah. me open it up. And this is from the ever-present origin. Mm. And uh, Gebser says this, and appropriately, there's a mention of the Tao, but he says, mm. mere mental wakefulness is not sufficient to realize the new reality. Diurnal wakefulness achieves only partition and division. It sheds light on the path. The Tao, as long as mental consciousness dwells in the phenomena of diurnal brightness, itself like conceptual time, a divider dividing the night dreams, sleep in the world, as long as its dividing is not an end in itself, it indirectly yields valid knowledge of the undivided. But if the world is regarded only through wakefulness, it loses its undivided dreamlike somnolent aspects and precipitates their separation. The dividing lead, sorry, the dividing deed leads to death, the death of man and his entire culture. Wakefulness then is not adequate, least of all the attitude of all or nothing wakefulness. And then this is his sort of proposal here, where he's sort of touching mm -hmm. into this integral or integrated worldview that I think you are also speaking to very clearly. He says, mm -hmm. clarity, however, is adequate, for it alone is free of brightness, twilight, and darkness, and is able to penetrate the whole where somnolent timelessness, somnial temporicity, and mental conceptuality all become diaphanous. Mm -hmm. Anyone who perceives in this manner is free from time and can see through the hole in which he partakes, not as a part, but integrally. So, mm. so as you're talking, I'm getting this sense that there is something about our, the nature of our own consciousness that you're speaking to in the book that can really hold, you know, uh, the, the conceptual and the animate. And, and so, yeah, I really love that you're bringing up these different practices. So I don't know, let, yeah. just letting us sit with that and percolate with that. And, and I would love to hear your own insights and yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That like I see the 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 depth um, that Gebser brings, and the just the this incredible sort of vastness with which I feel he's he's kind of looking at these questions. So so thank you. And um, yeah, what it what it um, sort of brought up in my mind is it's as if it's um, what he's asking is what does it really take uh, to get to the, the place that our sort of our, our consciousness need, needs to go? And, you know, I, I've, asked, I've asked that question myself, and in a way, the web of meaning does lead <clears throat> towards this overall question. And the terms that I've ended up coming up with is, I, I sort of see things very much in terms of connectedness, that once a, a, a lot of this book is about showing how both um, different wisdom traditions from the past and modern scientific insights lead us to this understanding of the deep interconnectedness of everything, of, of our own beings um, within ourselves, our connectedness with all of ourselves, our connectedness with other people, that in fact really meaning itself is something that arises from connectedness. And that's, I even define meaning from a system's perspective in terms of connectedness towards the end of the book. And 
when I look at what is needed, like what I feel as adequate, I actually come to a, a sort of a, a three-part, almost like a triangle, a triangulation, if you will, of what's needed, which all leads to um, what I view as true integration. And the first of this is what I um, we're really coming from our conceptual consciousness, actually. Um, but I think the greatest insight, almost the word, like the word clarity of what uh, kept us talking about, is what I call um, this uh, a realization and embrace of connectedness. The one that like this recognition of connectedness, using our conceptual awareness to understand it, but it's also not turning away from it because it's possible to look at the connectedness and put up barriers, almost like it's too much, but it's this, it's this embrace of it. And in fact, I view that as a working definition of really of the concept of love and um, that we can understand love as being that realization and embrace of connectedness that can apply either between a love of oneself or a partner love, deep love like that, or a universal love. In all cases, the different fractal layers, they're, this, they're that embrace, realization, embrace of connectedness. But then I sort of come at it from almost that twilight place that, that Gibbs was talking about and, and that notion of what I call harmony. Because if love, it, it's kind of still coming from this mindset, if you will, from this, uh, 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 some cognitive realization. And harmony, I, I actually explore in the book, harmony is not about just sort of being nice <clears throat> or um, <clears throat> um, just everything kind of flowing in some uh, easeful way. Harmony is about this kind of deep richness, uh, which we see in nature in terms of both, both competition and cooperation exist together to create this whole rich um, quality of an ecosystem. And um, I kind of view harmony as being basically um, a, an embodied attunement, um, moment to moment attunement and resonance with every moment. And I think that's a practice that through our own practices like um, dance or Qigong or whatever it might be, we as humans can learn to get back to that Wu Wei to really be in harmony with every moment. Um, so, and that goes, see the interesting thing is harmony without love um, is this very powerful, beautiful thing, but it can also lead to destructive qualities too. Harmony doesn't really have an ethics around it. Um, you know, you can sort of basically shoot people dead in harmony um, with every moment. Uh, and, um, but, uh, and, but with love, you can be sort of disconnected from your own embodied impulses and feelings. But it's when those two are together that they can work in this really powerful way. But I see a very important extra element which forms this kind of triangulation, if you will, um, which I see as really the, the compassionate uh, expression of the connectedness. And that's what I, I, I think uh, I just call kindness, very simply. Um, and I feel that is another critical measure because oftentimes in many spiritual paths or other way, places to move, moving towards awakening, that sense of kindness is lost and we can find ourselves in a very, um, a place of, of separation, even no matter if we're trying to uh, find ourselves in this deep connectedness, separation from the heart, the sort of heart of, our, of what connectedness means. And if you look at the source of that word kindness, 
I love it. It comes from the word kin, the Anglo-Saxon word. So it's kindness is really like a recognition of treating people as kin. And, you know, the indigenous uh, wisdom all around the world would always talk about all of nature as being as our relatives, which early Western science poo-pooed, like, oh, this kind of silliness. Um, and of, in, recent, uh, in recent times, evolutionary biology has shown how true that is, that we share basically more than half of our genes with a fruit fly. Um, even a banana shares 44% of its genes with us human beings. We're deeply connected as kin with all of life. And so that approach to everything with kindness, even to everything within ourselves, I think those three layers together form what I believe allows for a true path of really well-being within ourselves and for all of life. Yeah, beautifully said. Uh, thank you for that. I, I, uh, I'm very much resonating with with all three points, uh, particularly the bringing up of of Wu Wei as as mm -hmm. this uh, ability to to work in harmony with with what is right, or to go with this 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 flow of 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 things and nature not be against that flow. But um, yeah, I'm just like exploding everywhere with different possibilities. But the compassion, kindness, kin, the relationship with uh, you said was as a kind of like action out of number one, right? Like this realization and embrace of love and interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, well, how do you live in the world where everything is interconnected and kin, right? How do you compassionately navigate and engage and flourish in that world in that mutuality? So th this is all very much coherent for me. Um, I'm wondering if we can lean into Wu Wei because, mm -hmm. um, so just to give a little bit of a background, um, for me and, and sort of for some of the mutations community that's kind of come along with me over the past few years, mm -hmm. we've been very much interested in Taoism as it's shown mm -hmm. up in different forms of literature and particularly the writings of Ursula K. Le Guin. And mm -hmm. um, in our studies around this integral consciousness, Taoism has come up again and again. And interestingly, in this context with Gepser, he didn't, he wasn't really familiar with Taoism in any kind of um, contemporary sense. He was aware of it, but I don't think he leaned too much into it. He used it as you saw in that in that paragraph. And yet when his he tried to articulate these structures, the integral consciousness, mm -hmm. it was almost like he was writing a Taoist text. Like he's talking yes. about, um, I'll just read it like a few lines for you. And this kind of helps bring us back to this practice, right? Of like, okay, how do we enact both all three of these principles, right? So he, he talks about haste being replaced by silence, the capacity for silence, goal-oriented purpose of thought is replaced by unintentionalness, right? Wu Wei, mm. the pursuit of power is replaced by the genuine capacity for love, quantitative mm. vital motion replaced by qualitative spiritual process. You talk about process as well in your book um, and how we are processual, right? And, sim yes. and sympoietic. And mm. so there's, there's really, as you're articulating here, a kind of convergence of worldviews, right? Between contemporary science that's saying, hey, like all that hippie stuff is real, actually, like humans have evolved in this planetary context sympoietically, like that's how mitochondria evolved, Lynn Margulis talks about right. that. Yes. Um, so, mm -hmm. so there's so much about contemporary science, it seems to be confirming, as you're saying, this ancient wisdom. And here we are as human beings attempting to, well, okay, well, how do we live these integrated principles? Like, how do we lean into this practice of cultivating this unintentional 
awareness, right? So, yeah. and you mentioned a few, but uh -huh. there's a question somewhere in here or kind of like, this is mm -hmm. sort of what I'm just holding as I'm hearing you speak. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, and I, yeah, I, I appreciate you just kind of uh, allowing these thoughts to flow in a kind of way, kind of way to see see where where they go. And what what comes to my mind as you're talking is when I think of uh, I'm sort of putting my uh, imagining that I'm and gets to there in there like the 1930s or 1940s and coming up with these ideas. And what I sensed is there have been you know, a great number of um, really profound Western thinkers um, over centuries, really, who have tried to break out of that Western mindset, that dualistic Western mindset, that Cartesian, I think, therefore I am, and all that stuff. Um, and what it's, I, I call it actually in The Patterning Instinct, my first book, um, The Moonlight's Tradition. In, Western thought, because I think you can trace it all the way back actually to Heraclitus, even before Plato, who then got sort of disavowed um, by Plato, if you will. And I, I, I see this kind of whole tradition going to Aristotle, like this kind of systems way of thinking about life that went into Stoicism, then got totally outright rejected with the rise of Christianity. Um, but of course, even then within the Christian tradition, you had mystics who would be trying to break through out of that. Um, and then you see that in Leonardo da Vinci, and then uh, certainly in, the, in, in Germany in the 19th century with Goethe um, and uh, the whole and new ways of thinking in systems ways that developed in the 19th century, concepts like ecology and holism, uh, gestalt, all that stuff, um, even to the phenomenologists in the early 20th century. It's this powerful tradition which actually led cognitively, that those were the underpinnings of modern systems thinking. And people like Fritjof Kapra have done such a great job in recent decades of pulling it together and showing this is a coherent way of thinking, coherent theory of life and meaning. Uh, and I sort of see myself in that tradition of sort of uh, trying to take that to whatever next steps it can get to. But here's the thing, I think it's only in recent decades that we are enabled now, and that we have sort of this gift of having this kind of ability to access this planetary consciousness that for many uh, um, parts of Western civilization, when they'd look to Eastern thoughts, there'd be so little understanding of it that they would be this, um, people who tried to reach into it would fall into what Edward Said called yeah, Orientalism, like this romanticization of, oh, the mystical East versus the, um, the hardcore scientific West and rational and, and all that stuff is in danger of then creating its own dualities. And the good is there in the East and the bad is our West. Yeah, and we need to leave all that behind. And this integrative consciousness is, again, it's about embracing them all and finding the qualities in which they can all move together in a coherent whole. So in recent decades, I feel there's been enough understanding now that so many pioneers have brought from Eastern traditions, whether it's mindfulness, Taoism, uh, Buddhism, into Western understanding that we don't need to get stuck in this romanticization of it. And also, um, it's only been in very recent decades that science has led to this path of recognizing that this interconnectedness is not some strange mystical understanding that is different from uh, empirically 
scientifically valid, um, you know, peer reviewable, uh, rigorous work. But actually, that peer reviewable, rigorous work leads us to that same understanding. There's this um, great complexity theorist, uh, Stuart Kaufman who's uh, connected with the Santa Fe Institute, one of the leading um, areas in, in um, systems thinking in the world. And he, you know, he writes books like sort of At Home in the Universe, things like that, where he looks at how this new understanding of reality from a scientific point leads to this sense of connectedness. But he talks about how we're entering new territory that has never yet been um, understood. We need to map out and find out what how to make sense of this new territory. But what he... The, what he misses in that is that the Taoists, the Buddhists, and what I focus on in my book a lot is the neo-Confucianists, who are almost totally ignored in most understandings of uh, history of thought. But these, uh, these groups have developed deep ways of understanding this connectedness. So that's what I see as some of the great challenges for us in terms of integration, is to really weave together the greatest insights that they have, things like Wu Wei or in Buddhism, um, things like uh, that, that sense of uh, deep connectedness, dependent arising, dependent origination, um, or Neo-Confucians uh, had this notion of Li, the organizing principles that connect everything together, tie these together with modern science, not to say in some sort of cutesy way, oh, look, they, they sort of figured this, you know, they touched on these ideas long ago, isn't that cute? But rather to say, what is the wisdom that generations of thinkers uh, developed that we can now apply and understand from a scientifically valid perspective why that can lead us to basically a synthesized uh, integrative worldview that could potentially redirect humanity into the future. Mm, mm. And that's the big question, right? Like, um, I know we've, we've got a, a few more minutes, about 20 more minutes or so to, to, to lean into probably the most difficult of the questions. But mm -hmm. so we, we have this We've been talking about this history of consciousness and integrated worldview, the potential to synthesize the way in which modern science is, is actually converging. So there's a kind of natural convergence that you're describing, that, that you're, you're picking up on, that this is right. happening. So let's lean into it, right? Mm -hmm. So that being the context, the other, or the, 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 the material context that we're in is, is we're still operating pretty much in an in, in economic orientation economic ideology which sort of governs all of our thinking and provides even though we know these metaphors of of existence are exhausted that the earth is not this limitless resource that um that that having that sort of cartesian fixation on conceptual consciousness without this animate consciousness is is deficient it's it's exhausted and yet we don't seem to be able to stop right so we have this sort of barreling towards this climate disaster that we're in the middle of how mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on on like that kind of you know a, a, a planet that's burning yes. there's this potential for this integrated worldview but also we're kind of in this very real material crisis that how do we how do we how do we do this right that's right yes i and i see i mean these are the biggest questions of our century and maybe humanity's future is we do have these different uh, for trajectories going on at the same time. On the one hand, there is a greater awareness 
among some people of this deep interconnectedness, more like some version of whatever we might think of as a planetary consciousness that's arising. On the other hand, the same forces that um, that kicked off this modern scientific, <clears throat> that kicked off the scientific revolution and led to this uh, reductionist worldview, this mechanistic worldview, those are the forces that are still in absolute control of uh, of human destiny right now. And it's no surprise, actually, when you look at when that scientific revolution occurred in the 17th century, that was also the time and place of the birth of colonialism, imperialism, the birth of uh, racism, like white supremacy, the sense of whiteness, um, and the birthplace of capitalism. Uh, and uh, not surprisingly, the birthplace of the corporation, the for-profit limited liability corporation, which has now become this un like almost unstoppable force. We don't even know uh, if it is stoppable or not, which is totally dominating the world right now. So that we have these like crazed, I mean, to me, uh, something I just came across recently, which is so um, indicative of this global sort of mass psychosis, really, that's, that's there not just among people who, in their reactionary forces who reject everything that does lead us to some positive future, um, but even among people who see themselves as more enlightened. If you look, for example, at the IPCC report, you know, the one that is, has just made news by finally uh, getting some headlines to be aware of what anyone following the climate has known for many years, which is how we're already entering this phase of it's uh, potentially being too late. But when they look at their scenarios for how to what might lead to a one and a half degree Celsius rising temperature or two degrees or three degrees or whatever. And, and they explore these different scenarios of even including almost like magical thinking of some idea of massive investments in some carbon capture technology that no one's even figured out how to do yet, which would have to um, take hundreds of billions of tons of carbon in decades to go, like science fiction, basically. And they use that as their plug to come to the number. But even these, none of these scenarios even assume, even looks at the possibility of a reduction in global GDP year after year rather than a rise. They just take that as a given that is so hardwired into their thinking. It's just assumed that, of course, GDP has to rise every year, even if it leads to the destruction of civilization. But how do we come up with some magical thinking to then fix that? Rather than looking at this realization that this growth-based system is absolutely and inconceivable, it's, it, that, that is the, the thing that is magical and nonsense, that you can keep growing uh, the destruction of our environment and keep using nature as a resource in, indefinitely without uh, finding some kind of cyclical shift. And that's where, uh, when we do recognize this deep interconnectedness of all things, another of the big meta themes of my book is that the kind of spiritual awareness or this kind of deeper connectivity with the rest of nature doesn't come without an absolute um, realization and connectedness with the political implications of that and the power implications of that. And the realization that once we see ourselves as embedded in this web of meaning, that each of us is driven to use whatever power or privilege we have to really and be there as an agent for life itself, and to try to redirect our civilization against this life-destroying 
process that it's on right now. There's a lot of work to be done on this. And there's a lot of reasons to feel a sense of despair when we see this um, drive to destruction taking place at a faster and faster rate uh, one year to the next. But I feel that this is the place that every conversation, every deep investigation has to come to is the sense of our being engaged in um, this massive unfolding struggle between the destructive uh, qualities of our civilization right now and the struggle for life to regenerate and human flourishing to regenerate with life on earth. Mm -hmm. Yes, well well said. I, I feel in a certain sense, um, this is something I've been writing about a little bit in uh, the, the recent uh, Perspectiva anthology series called uh, uh, Metamodernity Dispatches from a Time Between Worlds. Right. And, and I wrote a piece on this concept of the planetary and planetary consciousness. But um, my, my point in bringing it up is that there's almost a kind of, like we've been articulating an integrated worldview. In your book, you're expressing in a very coherent and tangible, and as you're saying, practice-oriented way, like the science is here. The uh, the traditional wisdoms are present. We can we can access that, work with that, practice it. So there's this, in some sense, a roadmap or or, or a path out of this conundrum at a personal and even a social level and an intellectual level. Because you're proposing, like, look at the science, look at the theorists. Like there is an emerging integrated synthesis, and here's here's how we can put it together. So there's that, and then there's this other layer of of the civilizational crisis that we're in and that we've been talking about. Um, and, and it's almost as if the, the, the realism of that integrated worldview is showing up first as a catastrophe or a crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what I wrote about in my, in my article, that there's this sense in which we have a negative image of planetary consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe as like, a, like, I know, another big question, right? We had COVID, we've had this you know, global lockdown, but there's also been, you know, your book in this context, the conversations you've been having in these past few years, but many others as well, there is this growing sense in which these integrated worldview hippie ideas on the, on the kind of periphery have become, if they're not being addressed by the center, they're becoming more existentially and ontologically important for our civilization to pay attention to. So there, so their need is really becoming front and center. Uh, and it's manifesting collectively as this angst of like, what do we do? We know this way isn't working anymore. So, yeah. so, so there's this kind of interesting, um, what am I trying to say here? Like a kind of generative dimension to this crisis that's bringing this integrated worldview, even at first as a negative image of like that it's missing, or, uh, you know, we know there's this, this crisis and things we aren't things we are doing with capitalism and our worldview aren't working anymore. But the backside, the other side of that is, well, there's a hole in which we're apart, right? If right. the hole is falling apart right now, there's also the sense like, but we are part of this interrelated whole, whether we're yes. talking about, um, you know, global economics or um, trade supply routes or ecology and bioregions and anxiety around how we're mm -hmm. treating those, this knowledge that capitalism can't really pedal faster to get out of the crisis. This is a sinking collective structure of feeling that I've been relying on personally to communicate to others who are not in these circles. Like, you know what I'm talking about. You feel yes. it. And that seems to be a connecting point. This isn't really a question, but it's kind of like, hmm. I don't know, kind of like a yeah. framing. 
that I'm sensing. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and, and I do think uh, that it's incredibly important to actually focus attention on both 